listening um, specifically to be prayed for, then again, we've got a team of people who would do that very discreetly, uh, but would just love to kind of support you in that role. All right, what we're going to do is um, continue on with our teaching series this morning, but I just probably wanted to make an observation. I think that 2020, 2020 is a great time to be alive. And here's why I think that, because we're sort of in like the golden age of scientific discoveries. Like this, this time that we're living, we know more about our world than any previous generation did before them. And there's been a whole lot of amazing scientific discoveries, you know, through the microscope, through the telescope, and kind of everything in between. But even with all those amazing discoveries that science has brought, there is actually still many mysteries of life. Mysteries like, why is there only one word for thesaurus? Mysteries like, if you, why is it that when you tell a man there are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe, he will believe you, but if you tell him a bench seat has wet paint, he has to touch it? Why is it that Superman can stop bullets with his chest, but he always ducks when the baddie throws the gun? And perhaps the greatest mystery of all, how does a woman find anything in her handbag? <laughs> now, you're probably not like me. I mean, I'm lying awake really wrestling with these mysteries um, every night. You've probably kind of figured out most of them. But there are actually some very significant mysteries uh, that are very unexplained. So nobody knows why cats purr. I mean, there is an association between purring and pleasure, and most of you know that when you, you know, pat your cat, the cat would probably purr, but cats also purr during stressful events like uh, birth or, or when they are in pain, and scientists don't really know why. Uh, nobody knows why tomatoes have more genes than humans. So humans have around 25,000 genes, and tomatoes have 31,000 genes. You are not going to look at that tomato on toast for lunch uh, in the same way. People don't know definitively why we dream. So, <clears throat> so neuroscientists think that it's important in processing our daily, daily activities or, or making memories. Sometimes they think it's important in regulating emotions or, or even um, causing creativity. But no one really, really knows why we dream. And no one really knows what dark matter is. It's not like the name of a new superhero. Dark matter is, it's hypothesized that that is the stuff that makes up about 85% of our universe. And, um, and scientists are kind of divided on what it actually is and sort of what role it is and what role it has in shaping the universe. But if you want to find out some pretty crazy stuff, search for dark matter. Not the dark web, just dark matter. So that's some pretty complex mysteries that our, our, our world is kind of wrestling with. But one of the greatest, perhaps most complex mysteries is, is the Christian doctrine known as the Trinity. And so this is what Christians believe. Christians believe that God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Sounds simple, right? So the technical term is Trinity, and, and what that means is, is triunity or three-in-oneness. And so 
the word itself, Trinity, is not actually found on any page of the Bible, but the concept of God being three in one is clearly seen throughout Scripture. So in fact, on the opening pages of the Bible, you may be familiar, God creates the world and everything in it, and then He creates men and women with a very surprising declaration. This is what He says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And so in the very first chapter of the Bible, there is us and there is our, and this indicates the plurality of persons within God himself. And this is reinforced in Genesis and several places and several other Old Testament texts. But it's actually in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, where this whole doctrine of the Trinity really comes to full expression. So there's a guy called Jude, he was the half-brother of Jesus, and he's trying to encourage and motivate the early Christians, and this is what he writes. Dear friends, build each other up in in the most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. You see, three in one. Or Peter writing to the Christians scattered across modern-day Turkey. He writes this, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Trinity, three and one. Or Paul, One of the uh, authors of the uh, New Testament, he closes his letter to the Christians in Corinth with this. He writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so there's a bunch of other New Testament texts which reinforce this whole three-in-oneness nature of, of God. But just because the concept of God as Trinity is as clearly affirmed in the Bible, it doesn't mean that it's easy to understand. It's a mystery. How does it fit together? How does the Trinity actually work? And so what we usually do when we come up against a really complex concept is we we kick around for an, an analogy. We try and find some sort of comparison to help us figure it out. So, have you been aware or are you aware of any analogies, any comparisons that people use to try and figure out the Trinity. What is the Trinity described as being like? Any ideas? If you, if you want to share an answer, I'll chuck out some chocolate at you, because I've got plenty left. What is the Trinity like? How have people described it? Water? Right, okay. It's coming, coming to the back there, Jude. Okay, water, H2O is one kind of comparison, so uh, like liquid, steam, and, and ice. Someone over here? Three-leaf clover, classic. In what way? Ooh. Sorry. Yep, yeah, okay, cool. Any others? An egg? Someone yelled that out. Whoa, what a throw. Oh, yeah, okay. That's good. I haven't heard that one. Not bad, not bad. Oh, sorry, Vance. Anybody else? Yep. Yes. 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 Quite possibly. Whoa. 
Well, oh, oh, oh. Any others? Any other analogies? Okay, that's good. You actually got most of the most of the common ones. Um, an egg. Someone yelled out, three-leaf clover. The water. A tree. So the roots, the trunk, and the branches. Um, there's also been comparisons made between the human mind, so the the intellect, the emotions, and the will of a person, and also um, of a of a person, a man. So you know, a husband, a son, an uncle, you know, that sort of stuff. And and you're probably uh, maybe familiar with with some of those, and there's plenty of others as well. So I just probably need to point out that there is a lot of good intentions with those analogies, but all of them fall short in capturing the complexities of the Trinity. And they're a good attempt, but they're all really inadequate and, and almost kind of misleading to some point. So, for example, the three-leaf clover, it fails as an analogy. Um, no offense, Penny, it was, wasn't your original idea, but you know, the three-leaf clover fails because each leaf is only part of the clover, and, and no one leaf can also be comparable to the whole clover. And that's the same with the egg, water, the tree, the human mind. They all highlight distinct parts, the three parts, but none of the parts are also simultaneously the whole. And so even the analogy of the man, you know, as being a husband, a son, an uncle, that has failings because the problem is there's only one man performing those three roles, and that actually overlooks the distinction of persons within the Trinity. In fact, there's actually a real danger with this last one, so you're lucky you got two chocolates for suggesting it. But uh, it's actually an ancient heresy known as modalism. And so around about the third century, the idea emerged that God was not three distinct persons, but he was actually just one person who appeared in different modes or, or different forms at different times. So modalists believe that in the Old Testament, God appeared as a father to the Jewish people and then and then in gospel times, that same divine person appeared as the Son, as Jesus. And then uh, after Pentecost, that same divine person appeared as the Spirit who was active in the church. And so the idea was really that God was just one divine person wearing different masks or, or, or you know, showing different faces at, at different times. And, and that was condemned as heresy uh, through some early church councils. Because the early Christians recognized that all three distinct persons of the Trinity existed at the same time. And perhaps the most obvious example of this is in Jesus' baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, we record that Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends uh, out of the heavens, and then there is a voice which says, this is my dearly loved Son. All three, all at the same time. And so modalism was just really one of the ideas which those early Christian thinkers had to really wrestle with when they were trying to understand how the Trinity worked. And so in the first few centuries, there were a number of um, large meetings uh, that the church held, hundreds of attendees. Often some of the meetings would last several years, you know, so don't complain about your work meeting going for an hour or two. Some of these meetings would go for, you know, several years, and they would really thrash out what it was the core of the Christian belief uh, around, around the Trinity. And one of the most definitive statements of the Trinity is attributed to a guy called Athanasius. He was an Egyptian bishop, 
He defended the orthodox view of, of the Trinity, and he really influenced how we think and speak about the Trinity. So I'm going to give you a snapshot of, of his kind of um, thinking, uh, So yeah, just to kind of help you understand it. This is what he writes. We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit. But the divinity of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. And in this trinity, none is before or after, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So that in all things, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Anyone who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Oh, who's got a headache now after reading that? That's just a small part of it. But the Christian, of the, uh, Christian doctrine of the Trinity is, is actually it's less of a definitive statement of how the Trinity works. And it's more of an attempt to establish boundaries about how Christians should think about God. And within those boundaries lies the mystery of the Trinity. So if you want a little bit more on this, um, I've put on the church Facebook page and a, a really insightful video by The Bible Project. Um, it's, it's on YouTube as well, but they just give a, a very insightful, a very clever visual depiction of the mystery that is the Trinity. So if you want to, feel free to dive on that. It just goes for a few minutes. But I wonder if in the last few centuries, the Christian perspective on the Trinity, especially maybe in the Western church, has become a little bit unbalanced. There's been a lot of teaching around Jesus. Um, you know, and as people dive into the Bible, they see that Jesus, the Son of God, became Jesus and took on human flesh and blood, and he walked among us. And that's meant that Jesus is very accessible, very relatable, very familiar, which is a good thing. And then there's also been a lot of focus on the Holy Spirit and His power and His presence has really brought freshness and fullness to Christians around the world. But I think, unfortunately, in that, that's meant that God the Father has, has somewhat been largely forgotten. And I think that's understandable. Like It's difficult to relate to an all-powerful Father of the universe. You know, the personal work of Jesus, we kind of, we get the Son and and if you're a Christian, hopefully you've been empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit in your life. But God the Father often seems very distant and very detached. And I think part of the disconnect is that we see God the Father through the lens of our own experiences with our own human fathers. And I guess if we went around the room or even you know, people listening, there would be a range of relationships that we've all had with our own father. Uh, perhaps you've had a non-existent father. You know, maybe your father passed away when at a, in an early age or, or even before you're born. Or maybe your father was distracted by, by work or by play. Maybe he was disengaged and distant from family responsibilities or, or just not around or maybe absent altogether. And, and so that's meant that you've never really gotten to know your father and there may be some, some negative memories from that that you'd rather forget. And if that is your experience, I just genuinely want to say, I'm sorry for that. That history that you've had 
probably makes it harder for you to get to know God as a father. Maybe at the other end of the spectrum, there's been uh, a father and, and, you know, you've had the father figure around and he's kind of been like the classic dad, you know. He's great with his tools, loves to barbecue, loves sports, loves wearing socks and sandals, maybe has a dad bod, I don't know, and he's great with dad jokes. So I've actually got a couple as well, um, been working on them. So um, this, is, this is one, we'll just see what it's like. This is not original, by the way, I should probably just put... Singing in the shower is fun until you get soap in your mouth. Then it becomes a soap opera. <laughs> Jordan? Yeah, it's good, okay. Uh, two, two more, because... This is, this is a clip. I don't trust steers. They're always up to something. <laughs> that was pretty lame, that one. That was like a backup, if the first one wasn't so good. What do you call it when a snowman has a tantrum? A meltdown. There you go, that. Anyway, sorry, uh, moving on from that. <laughs> but perhaps you've had a great relationship with your father and you've had some positive memories and, and you know what it's like to be loved and to cared for and there's a real connection. And probably if we went around the room, around the room all of us would be somewhere on that spectrum. We've had different experiences, different connections with our human father and I think consciously or unconsciously we bring that perspective to God as father. But I want to tell you that God is above and beyond anything a human father will ever be. Whatever you think a human father should do, God as father does best, does better. So if a human father, like sometimes as human fathers, we, we struggle to always love our children, but God shows unconditional love to his people. As human fathers, we think they should try to provide for their children, but God always provides what his people need. A human father should share wisdom um, with their children, but God generously pours divine wisdom out upon his people. And a human father often seeks to discipline his children, but God knows the boundaries that we need, and, and he gives the discipline that will help us grow. And so just for a few moments, I want to explore this aspect of the Father heart of God that, that's often overlooked. Like we tend to favor God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. We like that stuff, but the discipline of God is sort of not really talked about because it's probably a bit awkward. You know, remember when you were a kid and you were misbehaving and maybe you were told, wait till your father gets home. That never worked for me because my dad uh, worked out of town often for weeks at a time. So mum had to deal with me then and there. You know, uh, couldn't sort of say, wait till your father gets home in three weeks' time. would sort of lose its impact. But in ancient times, discipline was primarily the role of the father. So if you've got a Bible, um, I'd invite you to turn or, or swipe to Hebrews chapter 12. And <clears throat> we're just going to have a look at uh, an encouragement, I guess, of how God disciplines his children. This is what we read. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. 
But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there'll be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. It's kind of interesting because our modern usage of the word discipline is is largely negative. You know, we think about correction and punishment, but the ancient Greeks and Romans, they had a much broader concept than just merely correcting bad behavior. For them, discipline was about teaching and training a child. It was actually about preparing that child for life through instruction and and information. And there's a little bit of a remnant in our, our modern usage in the academic realm. So if you go up to a professor or a lecturer and you ask them what is their discipline, you're not asking them what's their punishment or what's their correction. You're asking them what field of study do they specialize in? What information do they teach to their students to to prepare them for the career? And the root word of discipline is disciple, which literally means a student or a follower. And so when God gives fatherly discipline to his children, there may be an element of correction and punishment in it. But it's also about teaching and training and preparing us for life. And even more than a human father does, God genuinely wants the best for his people. And sometimes for us to flourish, we need discipline. A couple of hundred years ago, the famous English poet, a guy called Samuel Taylor Coleridge, he, had, he was hosting a guest at his house. And in the course of the conversation, the guest just said that he didn't believe children should have religious instruction. His theory was that a children's mind should not be influenced or infringed upon, and at an appropriate age, they should be free to choose their own religious ideas. Well, Coleridge, a very intelligent man, he he kept quiet, and then after the conversation, he just asked his guest if he would like to see the garden, and the guest said, yeah, he would like to see the garden. So Coleridge took him outside to the garden, which was absolutely overgrown with thick weeds. And the guest was surprised, and he said, this is not a garden, it's just nothing but weeds here. And Coleridge said, well, I did not want to influence or infringe on the freedom of the garden. He said, I I want my garden to freely express itself without teaching or training. And I think just like a garden, God's people need teaching and training. There are times when we need trimming, times when we need thinning, times when we need a hard prune. And That is not fun. But remember, when you were disciplined as a child, that was probably never fun either. I did not willingly line up to get my bum spanked. I hated when my favorite toys were taken away because I was naughty, and I hated having to stay behind after school and write out a thousand times, I will never throw spitballs at the ceiling again. It's not fun, but there was always a greater purpose in play, and the writer of Hebrews knew that truth. Look at this again. But God's discipline... Is, uh, <clears throat> is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there'll be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And if there is some pain and discomfort from God's discipline, it's ultimately to bring benefit to us in the long run. And we know that's true. That principle is true in medical surgery, physical therapy, even uh, athletic training. 
there's procedures, there's processes that are painful. Some of that stuff's uncomfortable. Some of the stuff is, is inconvenient. Some of it's really hard work. But the end result is better health or greater movement or even sporting success. And so when we positively respond to God's discipline in our lives, we grow. We see his plan, we develop our character, we deepen our faith, we expand our love, and he brings blessing to our lives and to the lives of others. We've just sung that God is a good God. He's a good father, and he knows what's best for us. So friends, I want to encourage you to think about some of the challenges that you're facing, which are many and varied. And I encourage you to discern what of those is the discipline of God. What is it that He is trying to instruct you or inform you or teach you or train you or correct you or guide you in? I read about a family who was heading away on holiday and, and they were driving uh, to their destination and, and in the road at an intersection they came up against a sign, big sign, in the middle of the road, and it said, road closed, do not enter. And the dad thought this was just a terrible inconvenience, and that the detour was just going to be so, so much longer, and the dad, for some reason, was convinced that the road was still drivable. So he ignored his wife's advice, <laughs> wrong move, and then he ignored the hesitation of the kids in the back seat, and he drove around the sign and then carried down the road. And the road was in actually pretty good order. And the dad was pretty stoked with this shortcut that he was taking. And then 10 kilometers down the road, the smirk was replaced with some sweat because the road led to a washed out bridge. And there was no way forward. The only way was to go back the way they'd came. It was a narrow road, so the dad had to do a 20 point turn uh, and returned, heading back down the road that they'd driven. And they came up to the intersection where the original sign was, you know, road closed, do not enter. And on the, as they're approaching the back of that sign, someone had written on the back of that sign, welcome back, stupid. <laughs> there was a guy called Arthur W. Pink. He was an English author... And he wrote this, form the habit of heeding his taps and you'll be less likely to receive his raps. God is a good God. He is better than any human father could ever be and God knows us best. And so I encourage you to tune in to your heavenly father, to listen to his instruction and enjoy the blessings that he generously gives you. Let's pray. God, we just want to uh, honor you this morning for the Trinity, the mystery that is three in one. There is perfect love and perfect unity, and we are grateful that you share that with us, that you just give us a glimpse of your majesty in the midst of your mystery. And we're grateful too for the Father heart of God. We just talk much about his love and his grace and his mercy, and we enjoy that, but we also want to embrace his discipline too. And so may we be open to his instruction, his teaching, his training, his guiding for a better future. 
May we be in tune with the Father heart of God. May we follow in his footsteps so we can live and love like Jesus, so we can be empowered by your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, band.